Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, October the 15th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the recent developments in the West African state of Burkina Faso, where Captain Ibrahim Traore has been inaugurated as head of state. The government of Uganda has declared a partial lockdown amid the spread of the Ebola virus disease in sections of the East African state. The Chinese Communist Party has begun its 20th Congress in Beijing, and some elements in Russia are saying that NATO cannot prevail in Ukraine. In the second hour, we look into details at the a recently formed coalition government in the Kingdom of Lesotho in Southern Africa, where the Revolution for Prosperity Party won the majority of votes. We then look at uh, the current status of the Africa-United States relations and how China, Russia, Turkey, and other states are outstripping the U.S. in regard to diplomacy and economic and political cooperation. Finally, we hear a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We're going to take a musical interlude uh, with Abete Masikini. Uh, Let's listen in. Yeah, yeah. 
Thank you. 
petit de tout ce que je fais Laisse-moi profiter de ma vie Le soleil brille pour tout le monde La lune brille pour tout le monde As-tu appris que j'ai réussi Tu ne peux pas supporter cela Tu es parti trouver les féticheurs Au colon mais je t'aime mauvais sort Tu as attrapé des palpitations La jalousie est connue dans le quartier
festival Abessi Massicini 2005. Douze filles qui ne se connaissent pas cohabitent ensemble dans l'auberge des Sept Arpents à Pantin, dans la région parisienne, pour un concours de chant. En direct de la locale TV, voici la plus grande explosion de l'année, festival Abetti Massicini, casting future star, Kabibi Je t'aime au-delà de toutes mes limites Peu m'importe And then a hero comes along et un concours de beauté. Moi, j'ai une question pertinente euh, en vous présentant au concours ici. Euh, Êtes-vous à mesure d'assumer les responsabilités d'une lauréate dans le cadre du festival Abetti Massicini, deuxième édition et de la première télé-réalité de la diaspora noire en France, qui sera la gagnante du concours de chant Qui sera la gagnante du concours de beauté Vous n'êtes pas jeune, mais du moins les critères ne correspondent pas à nos attendements. D'accord. C'est vrai, merci pour la compréhension. Chloé Kidinda. Merci beaucoup. Malvina, c'est ça. Vous avez 18 ans. L'ambiance était électrique à l'auberge. Je vous trouve assez lourde. Quel était le comportement des filles entre elles Vous le saurez en achetant le DVD du Festival à Betty Massicini très prochainement dans les bacs et en visitant le site aquessonw.com ou à la local TV sur la Freebox Canal 156.
African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, and we're here uh, this evening on Saturday, uh, October the 15th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story deals with the current political and security situation in the West African state of Burkina Faso. Captain Ibrahim Traore and uh, who is the officially became uh, today and who uh, had staged a coup d'etat uh, two weeks ago, today became the Burkina Faso's transitional president uh, two weeks after he seized power in the country's second coup uh, that has taken place this year. But he will be ineligible to run for office when elections are held. A national assembly that included army officers, civil society organizations, and traditional and religious leaders approved a new charter for the West African country yesterday. It states that the head of the MPSR, the ruling military junta, is the president and supreme chief of the armed forces. But the charter also stipulates that the president is not eligible to run in elections at the end of the transition period. Burkina Faso's latest coup, announced on September the 30th on state television, has raised fears that the country's political chaos could result in more violence from the uh, region's Islamic extremists. Thousands of people already have been killed by jihadis linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group, and some two million people have been displaced. Traore has promised to stick to the agreement that his ousted predecessor already had reached uh, with the West African Regional Bloc as ECWAS, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sadiogo Damiba, uh, who left uh, Burkina Faso for Togo after the coup, had agreed to hold a new vote uh, by July of 2024. Yesterday, thousands of people crowded outside where the assembly was taking place to show their support for Traore, a 34-year-old army captain who was relatively unknown before coming to power. Many waved uh, Russian flags, uh, saying they wanted Traore to work more with Russia rather than France, the former colonial power that has been helping fight jihadis in the region since 2013. We want Russia to come because it's been more than 100 years that we were colonized. France has been on the front line of the security situation, and we noticed that it is a failure, said Mohamedi uh, Sawadogo, 
uh, from the friendship between Burkina Faso and Russia, a civil society organization. Despite the support, however, some locals say there will be little grace period for Traore, who uh, must succeed where his predecessors have failed. All the Borkanabi people are expecting results, said Rasmini Zimba, a coordinator with the Belai Sibion, another uh, civil society organization, saying if Traore doesn't do that, he may be ousted like Amoeba. In East Africa, the Ugandan authorities are earlier today imposed a travel lockdown on two Ebola-hit districts as part of efforts to stop the spread of the contagious disease. The measures announced by President Yuweri Museveni mean residents of the central Ugandan district of Maman uh, Mubende and Kasanda can't travel into or out of those areas by private or public means. Cargo vehicles and others transiting from Kampala, the capital, to southwestern Uganda are still allowed to operate, he said. All entertainment places, including bars, as well as places of worship, are ordered closed, and all burials in those districts must be supervised by health officials, he said. A nighttime curfew also has been imposed. The restrictions will last at least 21 days. These are temporary measures to control the spread of Ebola, our President Museveni said. Ebola has infected 58 people in the East African country since September the 20th when authorities declared an outbreak. At least 19 people have died, including four health workers. Ugandan authorities were not quick in detecting the outbreak, but which began infecting people in a farming community in August, as the strange illness described by local authorities. The new measures come amid concern that some patients in the Ebola hotspots could surreptitiously try to seek treatment elsewhere, as did one man who fled Mubende, and died at the hospital in Kampala earlier this month, rattling health officials. Ugandan authorities have documented more than 1,100 contacts of known Ebola patients, according to the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Sudan strain of Ebola, for which there is no proven vaccine, is circulating in the country of 45 million people. Ebola, which manifests as a viral hemorrhagic fever, can be difficult to detect at first because the fever is also a symptom of malaria. Ebola is spread through contact with bodily fluids of an affected person or contaminated materials. Symptoms include fever, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle pain, and at times internal and external bleeding. Ebola first appeared in 1976, uh, some 46 years ago, uh, in two simultaneous outbreaks in South Sudan, and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it occurred in a village near uh, the Ebola River, after which the disease is named. You are listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. This is the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In China, the 20th Congress of the China Communist Party will open uh, tomorrow in Beijing and will work until October the 22nd. Almost 2,300 delegates of the forum, representing 96.7 million members of the ruling party, will discuss results of the last five years and will approve goals and objectives of the country's development for the next five years and probably for a longer period. The opening ceremony will start at 10 a.m. local time. President of the China and Secretary General of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is anticipated to speak with a keynote report. 
planning to step up efficiency of Belt Road and initiative projects as well. Soon Yi Lee uh, pointed out that the Belt and Road initiatives enjoy broad international support and has transformed into an essential practical platform to form a human community with one destiny. Now, China's top leadership will promote more effective international cooperation to implement the Belt and Road Initiative aimed at boosting multilateral projects involving Chinese and foreign capital. Sun Ye Li, spokesperson for the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, said at a news conference earlier today, we will continue to abide by the principles of cooperation and capital participation to help together ensure that the Belt and Road Initiative intensive development will constantly yield new effective results, he said. Song Yu Li pointed out that the Belt and Road Initiative enjoys broad international support. It has transformed into an essential practical platform to form a human community with one destiny. He recalled that the trade between the countries cooperating within the Belt and Road Initiative amount to trillions of dollars. The Belt and Road Initiative proposed by the Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, nearly a decade ago in 2013 aims to intensify international multilateral trade and investment projects with involvement of a large number of states and with the use of Chinese and foreign capital. Over 150 countries and 30 international organizations have already joined the initiative. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to the war in Ukraine. NATO has already been defeated uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this defeat is connected with the collapse of the project of turning Ukraine into anti-Russia. The Brusco um, said the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has already suffered a defeat in Ukraine associated with the collapse of the Western project to turn Ukraine into anti-Russia. Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Brusco uh, said in an interview uh, with the TASS news agency, NATO has already uh, been defeated in Ukraine. This defeat is connected with the collapse of the project of turning Ukraine into anti-Russia, Brusco said. On October the 11th, before a meeting of defense ministers of the countries of the alliance, NATO Secretary General John Stoltenberg uh, said that Russia's victory in the conflict in Ukraine would mean a defeat for NATO, noting that the alliance should not allow it. Now, uh, the Russian army has repelled the attack attempted in the direction of Beroslav. That's according to the TASS news agency. Ukraine's armed forces have failed in their offensive operation in the Kherson region. Kirill uh, Strymusov, the region's acting deputy governor, wrote on his Telegram channel earlier today, it is a total failure of Ukrainian Nazis' offensive in the Kherson region. The Russian army has repelled the attack attempted in the direction of Beroslav Kherson region, Stemusov uh, said. In other news, Grusko said earlier in an interview with TASS, he believed that Serbia suffers unprecedented pressure that goes beyond the framework of civilized international communication. Now, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grusko discussed overcoming the consequences of a confrontational policy of the West with the leadership of Serbia at the talks in Belgrade, the Russian foreign ministry said earlier today. Issues of bilateral cooperation were discussed uh, with an emphasis on strengthening the Russian-Serbian strategic partnership in the context of the growing global crisis. 
The parties focused on joint work uh, to ensure stability in the Balkans and overcome the consequences of the confrontational policy of the West, the ministry said. Rusko said earlier in an interview with Tass, he believes that Serbia suffers unprecedented pressure that goes beyond the framework of civilized international communications. We know perfectly well what unprecedented pressure Serbia faces now. This pressure goes beyond the framework of civilized international communications. But we appreciate that the Serbian leadership is acting in accordance with national interests, Rusko said. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, I would like to remind our listeners uh, that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at News. .blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Saturday, October 15th, uh, 2022, just go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. You can find the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Show your love. 
Here's a cover of Memphis Mini uh, with the uh, tune entitled The Last Chance. And uh, this is not the last chance uh, for uh, you to listen and share the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, we're here on Saturday evening, uh, October the 15th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we've been following uh, the recent elections in the Kingdom of Lesotho in Southern Africa. I'm going to get an update on the uh, new uh, coalition government that was put in place uh, several days ago uh, in the country after the victory of the Revolution for Prosperity Party of Lesotho. Let's listen in. The leader of uh, Lesotho's political party, Revolution for Prosperity, uh, Sam Matekane, has successfully found two coalition partners with which to form a government. After winning the recent elections, the new party fell just five seats short of governing alone. The road to the top seat of government is now clear. Political horse trading done and dusted. Now the businessman Sam Matekane and his coalition partners are ready to go public. As some of those priorities have been mentioned, we will go and see others and then we can be able to come and announce to everyone what we would have done in the first hundred days. There was mention of uh, the roads that are in terrible conditions. We will also look at that and fix whatever is wrong and make it usable for the public. The two smaller parties, Alliance for Democrats and Movement for Economic Change, are ready to get their hands dirty even under trying economical conditions. Asked if they still insist on not using state cars nor government residences. Indeed, I still maintain. I have not flip-flopped. We are aware that government follows its own protocols, but we will peruse the law and seek counsel. But we maintain that things done right we wish to use our family cars, our own residences, up until the matters of economy look stable. In due course, the National Assembly will reconvene for the swearing in of new parliamentarians who can now appoint the Prime Minister, who will then be inaugurated after being introduced to His Majesty the King. SABC News, Masoholosut. Yeah, very historic times that are playing out in Lesotho at the moment. Uh, to talk to us a little bit more about uh, these times, we're now joined by Tsikwane uh, Peshwane, who's uh, the Executive Director of Human Rights Body Transformation Resource Centre. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, these are momentous times in terms of just political shifts and change in Lesotho. Uh, please unmute. Yeah, good evening, Peter, and thank you very much for having me. 
and uh, good evening to the listeners as well and the viewers as well. All right, so as I was saying, these are truly um, momentous, historic uh, times in terms of political change and shifts in, in Lesotho's history. Yes, indeed. Um, drastic and un unprecedented changes that we have just observed uh, with these last elections. All right. Let me begin uh, by asking you to put on your hat as an election observer. Um, how did you see the elections? Were they free, fair, and a true reflection of the will of the people? Yes, I must say, uh, Peter, that... Uh, the elections, uh, we are, I don't want necessarily to commit by using the free and fair phrases, but uh, safe to say the, the will of the people have, been, have not been compromised. And that is the position we have taken, and that is the position that has been declared by the local observers under the Lesotho Council of NGOs. So we are we are actually saying taking that position because we we are also appreciating the challenges that were circumscribed in the process of election management, which uh, uh, involves quite a number of issues that we we uh, we were concerned about, which we have already been indicated uh, to the to the IEC, and also we have also been indicating them to other stakeholders. Mm -hmm that are involved in the process. What are your reflections about the state of Lesotho's democracy? Some might say that it's seen quite a lot of maturing in recent years. It's a country that has seen its fair share of troubles uh, over time, but it, it seems to be coming of age, if I can use that expression. <laughs> not, not quite, because not quite, Peter, because you remember that Lesotho uh, has always been on top of the agenda uh, at uh, SADC summit uh, because of the troubles that we have been experiencing in the past five to five to six years. And uh, we believe that after this election, uh, we are not going to see ourselves uh, now appearing on the top of the agenda uh, on SADC uh, uh, trouble state, uh, member state. So we, yes, of course, you probably, uh, and the world and the region as a whole, probably is in, impressed by, by the recent developments that we had, uh, we held a peaceful election process, uh, and we have now uh, observed a new, a newly formed political party taking over, uh, undermining other political parties that have been in the space. So it seems that uh, we are in, in a way uh, maturing because the, the election management is not characterized by violence and other problems that uh, seem to be a challenge in some other countries, as we know. So with us, it's, it's a different case mm -hmm. altogether. But Peter must also recall that when it comes to election management, uh, our election process, Lesotho has never had a problem, major problem, as far as the election management is concerned. We used to have problems after elections, once the election results have been announced. 
So it is not necessarily a new experience that this time around we don't have a crisis or violence after, during the elections. It has always been the case. Mm. It's just that after elections, that is when we begin to realize challenges uh, which are election-related or maybe related to the disputes of the elections. Do we have any idea of the profile of the voters that turned out? Did young people show up? Because there's always a question mark about young people and uh, whether they participate or not. And yet, their vote tends to be the one that shifts new ideas. It, 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 looks, like, it, look, it looks like the young people uh, in some areas came, came out to, to, to go and vote. But in some areas, we still had a challenge that young people did not come out to come and hold. Uh, generally, we seem to be having a problem with the, with the voter turnout. And uh, if you look at the previous elections, the voter turnout was 46.6%. Was and it's also hovering around as, uh, 40%, uh, even with this previous election. So it, it says... Uh, less than 50% of the registered voters have not voted. It's one of the critical challenges that we are facing as a country because we, it actually has, a, has two explanations that we can give to it. One, we have established that the voter's role is not really reliable, that it can really give us a true picture in terms of whether registered voters are really the 40% that we have, we have received or we are observing now. Because the, there is also incidences where some of the deceased have not been removed from the voters' role. So those cases are still there. We know them. So it means when we make our calculations, we make calculations on the basis on that unreliable figure. Secondly, we, the IC had, had, has been given a very short time to get itself ready and to make things underway for the elections to be, to be held in a smooth and adequate conditions that are required for the free and fair elections. So these are challenges that we have with these elections. You recall that the commissioners hardly have two years in office after, spend, after the IC spent almost two years without having the commissioners. And again, the IC has been experiencing the challenges of resources. And it's one of the challenges that have actually been impeded the IC to come with more robust strategies in terms of mobilizing the people to come, to come out and participate in the electoral process. So this is the kind of challenges that we've been having. And even this year, it's a challenge that has seemed to be one of the major problems that we are facing or we experience with these previous elections. So Parliament is going to look very different Will that mean a difference in the way the countries run, do you think? We have a businessman at the helm. Might that bode well in terms of how the country is run if he applies business principles? Yes, of course. We, we are now having a different uh, uh, political leadership at the helm of the, of the, of the government, as uh, uh, you have indicated. But the challenge is, you must understand, Peter, that it is now a different ball game altogether. Because now we are talking about management of the public institutions. The public institutions that have their own laws, uh, legal framework, 
and the procedures are almost different in terms of how things, how decisions are even made. You know, for instance, for the for the government to make a decision on the physicals, it has to seek approval from the from the parliament. And without the parliament approval, it may not be easy. With beside the parliament approval, you also have the technocrats, which is the civil service. You need to rely on those civil service for some of the decisions to be done, on some of the things to be passed through. So you understand that it's a different, different ballgame altogether because it is not like you have the management of, of the corporate entity, which I believe that the, the new leadership that is coming in is much more experienced and it has a milestone, it has a proof itself that in, as far as the um, corporate entities management are concerned, they seem to be doing well in the country. But with, the, with regard to the public institution management, it seems to be going to be one of the uh, experiences that we are awaiting to see how they are going to manage that sphere of, 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 of public space. So this is, this, is, this is one of the things that we cannot really uh, preempt what could be the fate or what could be the end because we believe that they are aware of the challenges and they are aware that this is a different sphere and different space of the management of public affairs. Mr. Feshwane, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us and uh, giving us some uh, insights about uh, these uh, historic times that Lesotho is going through. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Peter. All right. That's, uh, uh, Mr. Sikwane Peshwane, who's the Executive Director, Human Rights Body Transformation Resource Centre, who says that what he can commit to about uh, these elections that have just happened is that uh, they do not go against the will of the people. Welcome back. And that was an update on the developments uh, just this last past week in Lesotho. And uh, there is going to be a coalition government that's dominated uh, by the Revolution for Prosperity Party. And uh, here's a, another updated report uh, on uh, that coalition in Lesotho. The newly formed political party in, in Lesotho, the Revolution for Prosperity, has garnered enough votes to form a coalition government. The RFP fell short of the 50 plus one required for it to govern without other parties. The country's electoral commission announced the results earlier today. At the same time, observer missions have released their preliminary reports of the 2022 National Assembly elections. The European and SADC observer missions have commended the kingdom for peaceful, free and fair elections. Observer mission observed several campaign rallies and the general elections. Having observed 302 polling stations in all 10 districts, the mission's preliminary findings cite that despite a moderate voter turnout, the atmosphere was generally peaceful, with less than 13% voting stations visibly crowded. A vast choice of political parties competed in a peaceful campaign. It was low-key in the rural areas and vibrant in the capital city, especially during the last weekend before Election Day. Fundamental freedoms of association and assembly were well, well respected. I would like to congratulate the future members of the National Assembly for their election and encourage them to proceed with the reform efforts 
for the future of the country and to further strengthen democracy and stability in the kingdom of Lesotho. And for the regional Bodhisattvas, the observation went beyond the normal free and fairness of the polls. It is the implementation of the reforms process that took center stage. And when you've been in politics for a long time and you do things the same way and you think you'd make a difference, it's a waste of time. Einstein told us that. It's only a fool who does the same thing the same way and expects different results. The best outcome will be an outcome that has its root in the country itself and not that that is imposed by others. And we have seen during our interaction with the Kingdom of Lesotho that there is indeed a goodwill for the people of this country to get there. The just-ended SIDAC summit in Kinshasa on the 17th of August this year has approved an oversight committee that is going to oversee the progression and implementation of reforms in the Kingdom of Lesotho. SIDAC felt it was important that it should not just stop at the end of perhaps the uh, passing of the omnibus bill and other reforms or laws that are expected to be done. SADEC will partner with the Kingdom of Lesotho to ensure that the reforms are actually implemented. So this is the commitment that the region has made. Well, for some analysis, we're now joined by senior lecturer at the Department for Political and Administrative Studies at the National University of Lesotho, Dr. Tlahang Letsia. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. How historic is this result in the politics of Lesotho? Uh, thank you very much, and that day is very, very historic. Historic in the sense that uh, it is for the first time that we are seeing a party that has been in existence for only about six months making an almost clean sweep of the constituencies. It's also historic in the sense that it, uh, the results seem to be sending a message. I think they fit the description of what they call a protest vote. It sends a message that people were very, very uh, disillusioned with the incumbent parties. The fact that the incumbent parties have fared so dismally with the ABC coming up with no constituencies at all, uh, it means these elections are very, very historic. They are also historic in the sense that they involved uh, new parties altogether that brought a completely new dimension to the Lesotho politics. Uh, if you look at the RFP, it's led by business people. If you look uh, at BAP, among others, it's led by an academic. So those uh, new players brought some dif uh, different dimension into our politics. So the, the election was historic. 
is this new party genuinely a new congregation or is it people that used to belong to the other parties that have become disgruntled over time, disillusioned perhaps, and have come away from their homes to join this new, new church? This can be explained at two levels. If you look at the leadership level of the party, you'll find that most of the people who are there are relatively new to, uh, political, to politics, uh, at least uh, active politics. Because people like uh, Mr. Matekan himself, the leader, was a, a, a businessman. His deputy, Justice Ntumim Majara, and the Dr. Matlanyane, among others, the former CBL, uh, Central Bank of Lesotho governor. So at that level, they are relatively new people. But if you go to the membership at the grassroots level, uh, almost everyone there comes from one party or another. Uh, mostly it is people who have been disillusioned within their traditional parties, while some others are just people who took chance. They saw that they, 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 their parties were somehow dying, and then they saw an opportunity in this new party, and they just jumped in to try to maximize their opportunities. So what's the appeal of this uh, new party, the Revolution for Prosperity? Is it something that they're offering, or is it also voting against tradition? Uh, I, I, I think this can also be explained in a number of terms. The voting uh, that went in favor of this party, like I said earlier, it can be explained as a protest vote in the sense that people were very, very unhappy with what has happened in the past uh, five years. The 10th parliament was simply uh, the, the worst of all the parliaments that the, the, the country has ever had, and people were very much willing to have change. So it came at a very, very right time. Another thing that worked in, in its favor, I think, is the issue of the collapsed economy where you have now mostly the youth being affected. You have the highest number of unemployed graduates. So now the issue of economy has become an electoral issue. So we are here talking about uh, the leader who is a very, very successful businessman. So he's bringing some element of hope. And lastly, the philanthropic deeds. This is the guy who has dished so much money to try to... Uh, help the societies. If you look at his home village of Mansunyane, uh, he has turned it into a, a, a mini town from, from, just from the ashes. So the vote that he gets is a, is a sort of a protest vote to the, then in, to the incumbent parties, but it's also a vote of confidence for him. So what does this mean for the uh, ABC party and the uh, uh, Democratic Congress? Are they in real danger of disappearing? Uh, well, I think we would be somehow exaggerating if we say they, they, they are likely to disappear. But uh, they have suffered a lot. This means a lot to them. I mean, if, if you think of the ABC, the party that had won around uh, 
48, if I'm not mistaken, constituencies in the last election and coming up with zero uh, constituencies now. It means that uh, they have gone through a very, very serious decline. So they, have, they will have to go back to the drawing board. Uh, I'm not sure whether they will be able to uh, recover from this shock in time. The other party, the DC, I think it is also likely to have the, uh, some problems. Because if you look at some of its leading members, have failed to uh, win their respective constituencies. And now, to make it worse, some of them were, are not, were not even on the PR list, probably because of uh, complacency. So they are not going to be even in parliament. And for the first time, they will be outside government and also outside uh, parliament, most of those guys. So, you know, uh, in, in Africa, parties survive. Uh, by utilizing resources when they are they have captured state power, so it is going to be interesting to see how these guys are going to be cope while they are outside power. But they are very very affected by the uh, what has happened. These are interesting times. I wonder if um, the new party though will be given time because I suppose this victory comes with even greater expectation for change than uh, the older parties. Do you think that there will be pressure to create change almost immediately? And if they fail to do that, what could be the consequence? Uh, I think what you have said in that day might be an understatement. There are expectations. If they, they, they have managed to uh, get that sympathy uh, vote, the, the, the vote of anger, it means that people are expecting them to change. And the sad part about people is that they will not have that patience. They want change as at now. So it will be uh, interesting to see how this party tries uh, to meet the expectations. However, Having listened to uh, the Secretary General earlier yesterday, she indicated that they are ready for that. Their leader has already talked to them uh, to say that they have to uh, hit the ground running. And we, we, we are yet to see what will, will happen. But I think it would be very, very uh, good if they start by just trying to gather the what, what is achievable. They shouldn't try to aim high. I think they, they, they should do what is doable within the short time because the expectations are very, very high. And if they do not seem to deliver, people are going to be disillusioned and they know how people react when they are disillusioned. All right. They didn't get 50 plus one, so they're going to have to find a partner to uh, get the majority that they need. Who is likely to help them? <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it's a very tricky uh, question because if uh, we, we understand the lobbying has been, uh, the, the host traders have been uh, in the in process throughout the day. But personally, I think 
considering the pressure that we are talking about, the expectations, it would be very, very uh, wise for the new party to try to make an, a, a thorough assessment of who to bring into government. In my view, people have said that they do not want uh, those parties that are in government. So I think it will be very, very suicidal if they ever bring uh, those parties that were in government earlier. I think, like a new party, they need a partner who doesn't have any baggage, who is also new. So we are yet to see, maybe tomorrow or a day after tomorrow it will be clear, but I think they, they, they just need uh, parties that are not going to uh, be an obstacle for them to deliver because they have to be seen as bringing something that is new. Dr. Letia, we'll leave it there. Maybe, uh, I, I wanted maybe to, to, to close by saying maybe parties like the, 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 the BAP, the SR, uh, the Basutection uh, Party with its six uh, seats might help it to have 62. I mean, they need such parties. In, honestly, in my opinion, I, I don't think they, they, they want to risk by bringing those old parties. Dr. Lucia, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for your insights and analysis. Thank you very much and good night to you. Good night. All right, that's uh, Dr. Lucia. Uh, unpacking for us this historic uh, result that's taken place in Lesotho, uh, the Revolution for Prosperity Party, newly formed months ago, has uh, gone and won the election. And so businessmen uh, running the country perhaps might bring a fresh approach to uh, politics in the country. Well, the people certainly are hoping for a lot. We'll keep. And uh, that was a report uh, leading up to the announcement of the formation of the uh, three-party coalition government in the Kingdom of Lesotho. Uh, the government will be dominated uh, by the Revolution for Prosperity Party, the RFP, the new uh, party, uh, which uh, won uh, enough seats uh, to be dominant in the government in alliance with two other smaller parties. So we'll continue to follow the situation in Lesotho over the Pan-African Newswire. Right now we want to move into another report dealing uh, with the question of climate change. Next month, the uh, United Nations Climate Conference, the 27th, the COP27 will be held in Egypt uh, at the resort uh, area of Sharm el-Sheikh, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion and debate surrounding uh, this upcoming conference. Uh, here's a report uh, on uh, some of the issues surrounding uh, development assistance as well as climate change in Africa. China Global Television Network. As carbon emissions continue rising globally at alarming rates, the movement for holding polluters financially accountable for the damage they have caused is growing. But without significant political or economic leverage, African countries have struggled to make climate reparations a reality. So, what options do small and vulnerable states have? 
This week on the program, we explore the question of climate cash, where the money is, who holds the past strings, and how Africa can be paid what to do. I'm Penina Karibe. Welcome to Talk Africa. African continent is responsible for an estimated 3 to 4 percent of global carbon emissions, but it stands out disproportionately as the most vulnerable region in the world. Conversely, the global north is estimated to produce over 90 percent of these emissions. Climate change has had a huge and destructive impact over large swathes of the continent in the last few years. Much of Africa has warmed by over 1 degree Celsius in the last century, resulting in changing weather patterns which threaten food productivity and water security. Around Africa, we can feel the rising temperatures and we have witnessed the changing rainfall patterns. Lack of water due to failing rains and shrinking lakes and rivers is yet another consequence. It's estimated to affect about 250 million people on the continent and will displace up to 700 million by the year 2030. Now, one of the largest disasters linked to climate change that has hit Africa in the recent past was Cyclone Idai. It devastated vast areas of southern Africa with flooding and high winds, displacing hundreds of thousands of people and causing about $150 million worth of damage in Mozambique alone. According to the Africa Development Bank, the continent is losing 5 to 15 percent of its per capita economic growth due to the effects of climate change. Climate change has also resulted in increased desertification, melting glaciers, crop failures and death of livestock as its destructive impact across Africa continues. Joining me now to take a closer look at the question of climate change financing are from London, Isabel Hilton, the founder of China Dialogue, an organization focused on climate change. From Johannesburg, we have Ntlantla CBC, the climate and energy expert at Greenpeace Africa. And from Nairobi, Dr. Linda Ogalo, climate adaptation expert at the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD. Welcome everyone to the program. So, Dr. Ogalo, I will begin with you. You have worked in several countries across the region, helping communities build resilience through access to climate information and various adaptation strategies. From what you have seen, how has climate change affected Africa? Africa is the one few places, or one of the few places where when you talk to climate change to people who do not even understand or can articulate it in a scientific way, they can say it in their own in their own ways and how the climate has changed. If you talk to local farmers, they'll tell you we used to be able to plant this and get this this uh, amount of produce, but because the rains are not coming as frequently, the droughts are becoming more severe. We're not able to get as much as we used to. So, in as much as um, you don't ha you don't tend to get a lot of climate change deniers in in Africa because almost everybody can feel the impact and articulate it in their own way, even when they can't give you the scientific definition. Right. So, Ntlatla, how much does Africa need to mitigate these impacts and build adaptation? Uh, without uh, focusing on the figures, but one thing that we know in terms of the adaptation that we need is uh, 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 it's quite enormous. 
Uh, and if you take into consideration that uh, the manner in which we as the African continent tend to have the resilience to adapt after all of these extreme weather events, you would find that's one of the reasons why that we are far behind. It's because we don't have uh, uh, adequate financing. Uh, we don't have the infrastructure in place that actually has the, the resilience uh, to withstand I mean, all of these extreme uh, weather events that we are seeing. So uh, it, it definitely goes to say that we need to, uh, to go back and review the agreements that have been made at the Paris Agreement. Uh, what were the undertakings that were made, especially uh, by the richer countries or the countries that have actually had the advantage of developing at the expense of the climate, by the way, and find uh, uh, ourselves when we go to the next COP, as we are saying that the COP that's coming up in Egypt should now be a COP of action as opposed to a COP uh, 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 of negotiations. So Isabel, let's pick it up from where Ntlantla has left it because on average Africa requires $250 billion each year to address its climate-related needs and yet in 2020 what came in was only $30 billion. That's about 12% of the amount needed. Now in September African ministers meeting in Cairo released a statement saying Africa got less than 5.5% from the global kitty. Where is the money? <laughs> well, it's a good question. Uh, and I don't disagree that there isn't enough money. I think in terms of the distribution, though, it, you know, Africa, it depends on the fund. Um, some of the money is in uh, a thing called the Adaptation Fund, which was finally launched in 2007. And in its first decade, it, it, is, it, has been, it was helping countries to build adaptation programs, helping with specific projects, helping also to design policies, because adaptation is a very local specific thing. Every country needs, every place needs um, uh, its own model for its own conditions. So that was a start. It, it is a relatively small start. Then the Green Climates Fund, which prioritizes the least developed countries and the small island developing states. Now, African countries have had a, a substantial share of that because they're amongst the most vulnerable and the least uh, developed. So Asia-Pacific, 83 countries benefit. In Africa, 81 countries uh, benefited from that. And again, that's the, 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 the question is not so much the allocation, but the overall size of the cake. And one of the difficulties that we've had in between COP26 and COP27, in February, Russia invaded Ukraine and the global economies taken another enormous hit, particularly quite important donor countries in Europe, because it's disrupted energy supplies, it's disrupted food supplies, it's disrupted the markets, and there's just going to be less money as long as this war goes on. Climate change is something we've covered every time, every now and then. And that, you know, it just seems to me that every year what we hear, especially we journalists in Africa, what we hear from African countries is, where is the money? Where is the money? Climate financing has become a chorus. And so what is it really though? Why is, it song, why is this song sung every single year? What is going on? Well, it, if you look, I, I, I agree that we, we hear that every year, but actually if you look at the history of climate financing, you know, a great deal has happened since, for example, the Kyoto Protocol, but it hasn't always benefited Africa. So under the Kyoto Protocol, for example, um, the clean development mechanism was set up, and that was largely focused on helping develop, developing countries 
move from dirty industries to clean industries, from dirty energy to clean energy. That was financed by developed countries, and it was very substantial. But because Africa had less industry than China, for example, China was by far the biggest beneficiary. So there have been substantial transfers of funds in the past. And in the first phase, at least, they went towards mitigation because that was, as it were, you know, it, it still is very uh, the, the real urgent problem. And there's always been a conflict um, between, with limited funds, between mitigation and adaptation. And in that conflict, Africa has tended to lose out. But I would say that the amount of adaptation that Africa will need or is needing now is very much determined by how high temperatures actually rise, and that's determined by mitigation. So it wasn't foolish to put money into mitigation, but now that we are well into climate impacts, it is equally important for the sake of vulnerable countries, many of which are in Africa, uh, to, to up the funding for adaptation. And there is very much a consciousness of that. But as I say, we've had two massive hits to the global economy in the COVID um, pandemic and, and, the, and the Ukraine war. And it's not making things any easier. It was always a difficult conversation. And this is making it harder. All right. So Dr. Gallo, the chief economist at the African Development Bank, Kevin Chuka Urama, says Africa faces a climate financing gap of about $108 billion each year, each year. So how can countries be made to honor their obligations? For those who control the money, when we talk about climate change, you'll notice that the narrative is we need to get the temperatures down before we get to critical levels, which is a very valid point. For African countries, for us, we're saying the problem is hitting us now, so we need the money now. But the challenge, again, with us as African countries, we are not united. We don't have a single position, and we don't speak in a unified voice. We tend to where our vote is split against different um, factions, and all of them are saying something different. So how, where are we going to get the money from? I think this is for African nations to begin to, one, prioritize how can we begin to come to a common understanding as the African nations, and then secondly, how can then we begin to look at different sources? Because like has been said, there is no money. The money, where is the money going to come from? Uh, the Russian war is showing us that the, the money that we are relying on is no longer available. If you look at most economies are suffering from inflation. So as much as we want to keep talking about the loss and damage, and we should keep talking about the loss and damage, I think if, you're going to, if your people are dying right now because of a climate crisis, we have to begin to look at even issues of development. How about the developmental funds? Because again, much of the problem that we're having in terms of adapting to climate change is vulnerability linked, which is also linked to poverty. So as long as we're not dealing with the, the issues of energy poverty, we're not dealing with issues of, of um, the need to begin to bring the development actors and development funding into the climate change conversation, I think we'll always get stuck trying to talk about where is the money, because there, the, the money is limited and the ones controlling the money also need it. Right, and uh, I, I think in response to that, and coming to you, Ntlantla, uh, it would be for some of the African experts listening to what uh, you know, Dr. Gallo is saying, that everybody is going negotiating for their people. And you know, it's interesting that the chief economist of the African Development Bank uh, you know, said that, and I am quoting, 
climate finance structure today is actually biased against climate vulnerable countries. The more vulnerable you are, the less climate finance you receive. And I am thinking this goes against the very essence of creating this kitty. How does the structure work? Break it down for us. Unfortunately, as the good doctor said, you know, there's these conditionalities. This 8.5 billion uh, that I'm referring to has uh, uh, a part of the trench is actually soft loans, which means that the interest won't be high, but in any case, we have to pay it back. But it's meant to contribute towards uh, reducing the effects of climate change. And if you look at that example just alone, it really emphasizes the point that the person who has the purse or is controlling the kitty really determines the terms. Till we get to actually structuring uh, uh, whether it's based on the negotiations, and yes, I agree that, you know, when countries go and negotiate, they're negotiating for the position of who they stand for, and that is their countries. Or if they are negotiating uh, as a bloc, whether it's a European Union or whatever, it's because of the interest of the people that they're representing. But it doesn't really address the fundamental problem of how do we address uh, climate change, because climate change, unfortunately, does not have borders. We have seen that. We have seen with the recent floods, uh, not only uh, in the global south, but also in Germany, and we are seeing what's currently happening across the globe, whether uh, 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 it's in the U.S., we've seen that happening. And on the African continent, it's what we are living, as the, I mean, as the good doctor said. It's, it's what we are actually going through uh, on a daily basis, uh, whether we have a name for it or we don't have a name. So that tells you that the, the, uh, uh, the way that uh, the funding is structured, and I do accept that uh, we are going through an inflationary process now because of uh, the different geopolitical uh, uh, events that are actually happening, but the issue of climate change has been on the tables for decades, and it's still going to be there whether there is war or whether there is no war. Now, uh, uh, we need to find a way around that in addressing it and understanding that whether, I mean, from an African perspective, how can we really, really, really make it a, a matter of emergency as we are in a climate emergency to say that we need to address these issues. Otherwise, there are going to be nations that will not exist anymore because of the migratory pattern that are resulting from climate change and the, and the utter destruction that's happening, as was given uh, the example of Cyclone Idai. We've seen that in Durban. We've seen that in Mozambique. We've seen that uh, uh, even going further as far as Zimbabwe. So we need to get to a point where we are addressing this issue with the determination that it requires us to apply. All right. So we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll have more on climate financing and what Africa can do to slow down the effects of climate change. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. So with me are Isabel Hilton, Ntlantla Sibisi, and Dr. Linda Ogalo. Before the break, we looked at some of the impact climate change has had on the continent. Let's now look at how climate cash would be able to mitigate some of these effects across Africa. 
Dr. Gallo, in the Rotterdam Summit, the Global Center and Adaptation CEO said success in Egypt will depend on whether Africa's needs are met or not, and that Africa has the commitment and the plan. What is Africa's agenda for this year's COP27 summit? I think um, usually with negotiations like this, uh, African nations keep their position close to the vest because, again, you do not want to give up your position ahead of the negotiation to give the other side time to um, react or to prepare. So I know the one that we we have been very vocal about as a continent is on loss and damage and ensuring that the climate finance is, is flowing towards adaptation, like you have mentioned. Well, one of the challenges that Africa faces is that the countries do not speak in a unified voice. And so I was just curious to know what is big on Africa's agenda now? I mean, what, what is Africa looking for? I think like you rightly put it, if you, if you listen to a lot of the leaders, we are talking about the loss and damage, about the fact that if you look at the Horn of Africa right now, we have parts of the region that are going into the fifth failure in terms of rainfall, five failing seasons of rainfall. Countries like Somalia are, about, uh, are in the process of almost having a famine. So issues of uh, climate finance ha is, is one thing that you'll hear across from most of our African leaders is how can we then strategize to ensure that the finances that are intended for the region are getting to the region. Because even if you get out of the, the traditional mechanisms for climate finance provided by UNFCCC and look at the philanthropic um, financing in, that's coming into climate change, even there there's only about 3% uh, been directed towards adaptation. So I think for the African leaders, at least for the African people, because for right now, just like the globe is beginning to see, we're seeing significant impacts when we talk about climate impacts with droughts and flooding as well. So for our leaders that are struggling right now, even as a result of the, the current uh, global crisis, financial crisis, we, they, they need to begin to talk about how do we get more access to the finance so that we can dev continue development and so that climate um, or climate impacts is not setting us back in terms of the developmental agenda. Okay, so Ntlantla, what is Africa already doing to mitigate and adapt to climate change? Individual countries are taking action on the ground, and uh, I would say that uh, thanks also to civil society, because we've been making quite a lot of noise to actually uh, uh, unpack the science. I mean, we continue to work on unpacking what the science means, not only uh, for the sake of awareness to people, but also to government to make sure that they're taking this uh, situation quite seriously. And I would, I would say that we need to commend different countries that are taking action, whether it's through their just, uh, I mean, uh, transition programs like in the case of South Africa. But unfortunately, we are not doing enough because we do lack, to a certain degree, uh, some level of expertise that will actually uh, take action on the ground. Yes, we can continue applying our indigenous knowledge uh, uh, systems as we have been doing in some rural areas, but we also de do need uh, uh, a certain level of funding. And also just to add to what has been talked about, you know, our agenda when it comes to the upcoming COP, loss and damage is really becoming an issue. And uh, what we are actually discovering now, uh, to some it may seem like it's a new thing or a new position, but it has been there, it's just that there hasn't 
uh, most of the African countries have not really rallied behind uh, I mean loss and damage. We have to have a position that is clearly mapped out and that, and, and that clearly articulates steps in terms of how do we move uh, uh, with regards to, I mean, to loss and damage. But Isabel, let me come to you. Much of Africa's climate financing is from public actors. Why isn't the private sector involved? You're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the, at the balance, it's um, about 65% public. Um, then there's about 45 in loans, and uh, private investment is, is a very small percentage. And private investment, I have to say, was always thought to be uh, part of the promised 100 billion. So we have failed to mobilize private investment as we should have. Part of it is, I think, private investment not understanding opportunity, but also the question of risk. So private investment won't go where it considers the risks are too high. So what we need is a combination of public finance, which uh, mitigates the risk and, and, and blends with private finance to do things like building renewable energy in Africa. Africa has massive solar resources. It could be a real powerhouse. Um, it could have an energy system for the future and not one for the past. And, you know, we, we, we do have African leaders and African entrepreneurs who are thinking that way. Um, but we haven't been very effective so far at producing the kind of blend of of private and public finance that 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 really you know puts um, uh, turbocharges this kind of development, but it certainly could happen. It won't happen just with public money because for reasons we've discussed already, that's going to be tighter than it was. But there is private finance, there is private investment um, potential, uh, and it's a matter of lining up the risk mitigation, the insurance, and the opportunity. And and Dr. Gallo. Uh, what are the opportunities that exist for green investment in Africa for the private sector? Increasing access, energy access, and solving the energy poverty conversation, because the one thing that we have as an advantage for Africa, we, I think we're about 50% uh, in terms of electrification, uh, give or take. So when you talk about the West and the West moving to green energy, it means they have to change the entire infrastructure because most of, the, most of them already have access to energy. But for Africa, if we begin to look at our people as uh, markets and for, for energy companies, for example, if we begin to engage the private sector, the one thing that we have as a nation is social capital. I mean, as a continent is social capital. We have the numbers, uh, our youth budget is, is continuing to increase. So we need to begin to invest in the capacity of rural people, of rural communities, help them industrialize, engaging the private sector. And of course, it has to do with incre increasing energy access. Because as much as we're talking about, yes, we have been impacted by um, climate change now, our biggest issue is poverty. Our vulnerability issues is as a result of poverty. And there's no way we can do that without access to energy, access to technology. And as much as we would love to do that in a clean way, the reality might be that if we want to get up our nations industrialized and, and developed, to, be, to give them a chance to adapt and to get out of that poverty cycle, we might have to do it in a way that is not pleasing to the, to the global um, um, community, so to speak. There needs to be a sincere conversation in terms of this is where we are and what are we willing to do to prioritize our people uh, ahead of the global community, which is what the West does all the time. So African leaders need to 
really think about how to get the people out of poverty, which is the biggest issue when it comes to vulnerability. And we can't do that without energy access. We, cannot, we might not be able to do that without contributing to emissions. Right. And, and as we finish this conversation, this is a question I'm going to ask each one of you, starting with you, Isabel. So should this money that Africa has been looking for, should it come, how should it be distributed? Morally, the case would be for the for the most vulnerable and to and to alleviate the the impacts. Um, but there is also the other case that it, that if you want real resilience, then we need to invest. We need to invest, and in how we need to invest. For example, if you're a, a development uh, agent, does a country need an airport or a good urban drainage system? You know, these are really important decisions that have to be made and we still tend to go for the more sort of glamorous and perhaps old-fashioned option where it's actually what we need a resilience so i think the money should go to resilience right so what about lantla or what do you think i mean we look at your country south africa it's africa's industrialized most industrialized economy and then you look at a country like mauritania for instance or chad so when we talk about distribution of these funds what should be the criteria we have one of the highest solar radiations on the planet. And, we, and, and unfortunately, we are not as deliberate as we were during the COVID pandemic, where we were able to come up you know, with stimulus packages that actually, that's actually going to boost um, uh, our energy sector and create our own manufacturing capabilities, whether it's with solar panels or your wind turbines, etc. So I think we should move away from that myth because uh, 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 we're actually holding ourselves back and we are not deliberate, we are not ambitious enough to start uh, producing these uh, solar farms or these wind farms that, as, I mean, I mean, that we have seen. Unfortunately, Germany is far leading than South Africa yet uh, when it comes to radiation, so, I, mean, uh, I mean solar radiation, that is, is, is South Africa is quite ahead. So in terms of actually where we need to be going, and I mean, we need to start being deliberate in terms of us moving forward to start in our own corners, in our different countries, depending on the capabilities, the funding that we, I mean, that we're having, that we start laying out these projects. I mean, like in the case of South Africa, we have what we refer to as a just transition uh, uh, program. It's now in, in intentionally trying to look at, I mean, because we have a whole, a, a high coal profile. How do we move these coal uh, producing workers to now get into the renewable ex, I mean, I mean sector, and that's the just transition that, unfortunately, that we need to have. Go, I mean, we need to go through if we want to bring down our mission. So it means that we need to be deliberate, we need to be ambitious, and yet, as Greenpeace Africa, we are asking for, I mean, for, I mean, for all of us to actually to put the wheel to the shoulder and start thinking in a different way in which we can uh, start applying uh, these different projects on the ground. And Dr. Ogallo, what are your final thoughts on distribution of these climate finance? I think like the loss and damage um, conversation goes, you have to be, like, like I said earlier, you have to have a framework for loss and damage which quantifies what the losses are. So ideally, if you're paying out um, a policy based on damage, then ideally then it should, uh, the level of damage should determine the level of payout, ideally. So most of the, the the countries that might be getting, if you look at the impact, not as bad or high numbers uh, in terms of the numbers of people impacted, a lot of it has to do with with, with um, 
uh, adaptive capacity, which is linked to poverty. So then do you give um, South Africa that's a bit ahead the same amount of money that you give Somalia, for example, that uh, ha might not be having be impacted by cyclones as, as much as the, the Southern Africa, but needs it a lot more? Do you then prioritize it that way? And I think ideally there's two factors. Do you look at who's most impacted by by um, virtue of the fact that they, they have nothing, or do you look at who has the capacity to bounce back faster? So it's, it's a difficult decision, and I'm also glad I'm not part of the ones making it. <laughs> I agree with you. Well, I think this is a very interesting topic um, that we could go on about for forever, I think. But we have to close it at some point, and this is it. That is all for this edition of Talk Africa. A very big thank you to all our guests, Isabel Hilton, Sound of China Dialogue, an organization focused on climate change. We had Mkhlafla Sibisi, climate and energy expert at Greenpeace Africa. And we also had Dr. Linda Gallo, climate adaptation expert at the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. Do keep the conversation going and join us again next week for War Talk Africa. From me, Senina Karibe, and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, it's goodbye. And uh, that was a report on uh, the impact of climate change on the African continent and discussions about <clears throat> transforming our reliance on uh, extractive energies to more renewable energy resources. And uh, this is conversation has took place in light of the upcoming COP27 summit uh, next month in the North African state of Egypt. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. I can't stand the rain against my window. Bringing back sweet memories. Yeah, when the rain. Just one.
that have been confirmed uh, here in Africa. We have lost just over 255,000 uh, people due to COVID, and um, the cumulative case fatality rate is 2.1%, which accounts for 4.1% of the global deaths due to COVID. Our case um, uh, fatality rate of 2.1% is higher than the global average of 1.1%. Looking at all the figures from the beginning of the pandemic, um, these five countries have um, uh, experienced the largest uh, burden of COVID. South Africa with 33% of the cases here on the continent, Morocco 10%, Tunisia 9%, Egypt and Libya each with 4%. When we look at the epidemiological week 40, which is running between the 3rd and the 9th of October, and then we compare it with um, epidemiological week 39, this is what we see. The number of new cases during this epi week 40 is 6,000 279, which is a 15, that is 1.5% increase when compared to the previous week. The highest proportion of these new cases are in Northern Africa region with 6%. The number of new deaths during AP Week 40 is a total of 21 and this is a 60% decrease, 60% decrease in the number of deaths when we compare it to AP Week 39. When we analyze it over a period of four weeks, we see that the trend of new cases has shown a 10% increase when we look at the four-week period. The increases have come from eastern, central, and southern regions, while decreases have been seen in northern and western regions. But overall, the period of four weeks, um, we have seen a 10% increase uh, across the continent. During the same period of four weeks, when we look at new deaths, we see that there has been an overall 2% average increase in the new deaths, and the increases have been seen largely in northern, southern, and western uh, Africa regions, with decreases being recorded in eastern and no change in the central Africa region. So for new deaths over the last four weeks, we have seen a 2% average increase. For vaccination, um, COVID-19 vaccination, when we look at um, the continent as of the 12th of October, the total number of vaccines that have been supplied are 997 million uh, to 54 of our member states. The total number that has been admin administered so far is 717, that is 717 million doses, which accounts for 72% of the total supplies to the continent. The coverage of those 
who are fully vaccinated is 23.2% currently, and boosters stand at 2.8%. When we analyze the vaccination on the continent, this is what we see, that when we look at AP Week 40, 15 countries have indicated increased vaccination rates compared to the previous week while seven countries have indicated a decrease in vaccination rates compared to the previous week. We attribute the increase in um, um, vaccination rates to the uh, sustained campaign, the mass campaigns that we are holding across the continent, and also better availability um, of vaccines at the points of vaccination where uh, mass campaigns are not being uh, conducted. We are, however, seeing some challenges um, with the numbers of people being vaccinated due to competing priorities, including other outbreaks like polio, yellow fever, measles, cholera, even Ebola. And um, we um, are also seeing that um, uh, the systems are uh, being stretched um, when you have the same health workers going out for the mass vaccination campaigns. We are working with our member states to ensure that this period of mass vaccination campaigns do not affect the provision of healthcare services for the routine work that healthcare workers do. We are therefore recommending to our member states to do the following to increase vaccination rate. Where appropriate to integrate COVID-19 vaccinations with other um, interventions, including other vaccination uh, campaigns, to improve collection and management of data so that we have accurate figures of those who are being vaccinated, to improve access to vaccines through door-to-door campaigns and mass vaccination campaigns across each and every country, and also to pay close attention to the youth, because this is uh, the majority um, within our continent. So uh, targeted mass uh, campaigns that uh, are aimed at the youth, uh, we are recommending uh, that. When we look at deliveries that uh, we are doing as um, Africa CDC, the Africa Union, through the AVAT mechanism, over the last uh, week, we have um, delivered additional Johnson & Johnson vaccines to Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Malawi, and Central Africa Republic. These additional um, doses of vaccines are designed to support the mass vaccination campaigns that we are conducting through the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative. To date, we have supplied um, 99.4 million doses of Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccines that have been delivered to 36 um, of our member states. And of the 99.4 million, um, what we have facilitated, that, that we have facilitated, um, 72.8 million comes from um, the Africa Union um, uh, mechanism where member states have been paying for these vaccines. Um, 
the, the Saving Lives and Livelihoods program supported by the MasterCard Foundation has procured so far 19.2 million doses, and the U.S. government donated 7.3 million doses um, of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines uh, for use on the continent. So this is the situation with um, uh, COVID-19. Let's move now to other uh, public health um, events of concern on the continent. We are currently closely following up 10 different um, events. Um, today, I will share some details of four, while uh, the other six um, we are monitoring um, uh, from a distance. And let me start by letting you know which the 10 are. First, and this is a new event, is um, the um, diethylene glycol and ethylene glycol poisoning in the Gambia. Um, to make it simpler, this is the cough syrup um, that has caused deaths in the Gambia, Ebola virus disease outbreak in Uganda, wild polio virus um, outbreak in Mozambique, and um, the multi-country monkeypox outbreak across the continent. So these are the four that I will give you some details about. The other six that we are still following up um, are the Rift Valley fever in Mauritania, West Nile virus outbreak in Tunisia, uh, the multi-country Lassa fever outbreak on the continent, measles, again, this is a multi-country outbreak, cholera, another multi-country outbreak, and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever uh, in uh, South Africa uh, at the moment. So I will speak to four um, of these and give you some detail. The cough syrup poisoning in the Gambia is a new public health event on the continent. And on the 5th of October, uh, the Gambian Ministry of Health reported um, that um, uh, about 78 um, individuals had been affected and resulted in 66 deaths, giving us a case fatality rate very high of 85%. And this was the result of um, acute kidney injury amongst children um, roughly between five months and seven years uh, from across uh, Gambia as a country. All of them, the 78, had a history of being administered this particular cough syrup that had been imported uh, from one of the countries that supplies uh, medical products uh, to uh, African countries. When toxicology assessments was done um, of the different samples of cough syrups that had caused uh, these uh, deaths, it was confirmed that uh, those cough syrups had uh, diethylene glycol and ethylene glycol. Uh, these are contaminants which are known to be toxic and uh, often potentially fatal. So far, only Gambia has reported uh, this um, uh, particular effect on those who are consuming uh, cough syrup. The Gambian Ministry of Health established very quickly an emergency response plan, um, and um, all the cough syrups um, in question were recalled, um, tested, um, so as to develop an understanding of how broad this contamination was for products that were on the shelves. 
Africa CDC, when um, uh, we were informed, we have been working with Gambia uh, and um, the um, uh, origin, the country of origin, to be sure that uh, no other country would have contaminated batches of this particular cough syrup. The second is Ebola virus disease in Uganda. Since the last brief, 10 new confirmed cases and nine new deaths have been uh, documented. Um, and this is a 47.3% decrease in the number of new confirmed cases compared to the last briefing. I must add here that uh, the government of Uganda has um, uh, recently adjusted the reporting to uh, only those cases that, that have been confirmed. The reason being that um, testing capacity has improved and therefore it is important that um, we uh, provide specific and accurate information about um, cases that have been confirmed. Um, cumulatively, uh, 54 cases have been confirmed with 39 deaths and of the 39 deaths, 19 are confirmed cases and the others are um, uh, probable uh, because um, they passed away at a time that uh, swabs could not be able to be taken for confirmation. So the case fatality rate so far is 35% across five districts of Uganda. Of the total number of confirmed cases, 10 are health workers, and unfortunately we have lost four health workers uh, thus far. Um, the good news also is that 14 um, individuals have recovered and are being reintegrated back into their communities, and these 14 include five health workers. In addition, 1,123 contacts are now being monitored, um, and uh, 432, which is 38%, have completed their 21 days follow-up, and have been released and reintegrated back into uh, the community. The number of those who are being followed up has actually increased by 30% compared uh, to our previous briefing, meaning that uh, contact tracing has improved and um, cooperation from members of the public has also uh, improved. The Ministry of Health in Uganda um, is um, very actively through its emergency operations center engaging with um, their communities, um, strengthening the healthcare system around the affected districts, providing uh, risk communication and community engagement beyond uh, the area where there is um, um, the epicenter. And uh, with support from partners, including ourselves, um, we are expanding uh, this support, the communication and the engagement with the uh, communities beyond um, the affected areas, indeed, into the neighboring countries as well. We as Africa CDC, apart from activating our own emergency operations center here um, at, um, uh, in Addis Ababa and uh, our Nairobi uh, office as well, we have deployed um, teams of experts to support the um, Ugandan response, um, and indeed, uh, we continue to train um, uh, health workers on the ground on uh, in, in infection prevention and control, on case management, 
and particularly on contact tracing um, and um, uh, community uh, engagement to ensure that uh, all relevant um, individuals and uh, influencers of the communities have been provided the right information uh, to be able to secure those who may be exposed and limit uh, transmission beyond um, the epicenters. Um, the third is wild poliovirus in Mozambique. On the 5th of October, the Ministry of Health of Mozambique reported one case of wild poliovirus type 1 in one of the provinces of the country, and to date, seven cases have been reported from that particular province. The Ministry of Health, with support from Africa CDC and other partners, have intensified polio surveillance activities across the country with focus, of course, on the province that was affected. Finally, is the multi-country monkeypox outbreak. Um, since the last briefing, 14, that is one four, new confirmed cases have been reported from Cameroon 1, Ghana 12, and Mozambique 1. This is a 62.5% increase in the number of new confirmed cases when compared to the last briefing. Cumulatively, since the beginning of this year, we have documented 5,826 cases, including 717, 717 that are confirmed and 5,110 that are suspected. Unfortunately, we have lost 155 individuals, giving us a case fatality rate for monkeypox across Africa of 2.7%. And all this has happened in 13, that is one three of our member states on the continent. As Africa CDC, we continue to work with our member states that are affected, um, and um, we have increased our supply of laboratory uh, test kits so that we can confirm as many of the suspected cases uh, as possible. We are training um, laboratory technicians as well in um, uh, um, laboratory diagnosis of uh, monkeypox. We are also sequencing uh, samples uh, to be sure that we are not um, uh, seeing any variants or uh, uh, any new strains. Um, we have also strengthened uh, capacity for disease surveillance, particularly amongst communities um, where the epicenter was. And um, we continue to mobilize um, uh, to discuss with uh, our partners on um, uh, vaccines uh, for addressing uh, monkeypox. These are the four outbreaks that I wanted to share with you today. But as I said, the other six, we are still continuing with um, monitoring. Uh, and uh, when um, necessary, we shall be able to provide you with more information regarding those other outbreaks. Um, beyond public health events, during the 4th and 6th of October, um, Africa CDC held um, a training for uh, public broadcasting entities um, or in um, West Africa. We held this in Benin, in, uh, in Cotonou, in Benin. And uh, we provided um, training to these journalists 
on how to identify um, information that is not correct, how to um, address infodemics, how to use the health data that we release in a way that can be able to help um, and support uh, public health interventions uh, on the continent. Um, it was very well received and there's requests for more to happen in other parts uh, of the continent and we shall continue to do that. On the 10th of October, <clears throat> we commemorated the World Mental Health Day and uh, considering the type of work that we are in, um, emergencies all the time, um, this year's World Mental, Health, uh, World Mental Health Day was particularly important, uh, particularly the theme of make mental health a global priority for all. We as Africa CDC have made mental health a priority and we are putting in place uh, programs uh, for our staff and the staff of the Africa Union in general uh, to provide psychosocial support um, when necessary. Thirdly, on the 12th of October, um, uh, which is yesterday, the government of Uganda hosted a high-level emergency ministerial meeting um, on cross-border emergency preparedness and response um, with support from ourselves as Africa CDC and uh, the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. We had 11 countries represented at ministerial level, and uh, after the whole day's discussion, a communique was issued, which you will see on our website. Um, we've also issued a press release to go with it. And uh, the three key agreements that were made at this meeting are, one, uh, the ministers decided to set up an Africa Ebola Coordination Task Force effect, and um, the reason for setting up this task force is to mirror what we did with COVID so that we can be able to have information flowing quickly um, across the continent and uh, also standardize the way in which we prepare and respond uh, to, uh, to, to Ebola uh, outbreaks. We want to be sure that every country that is at risk is well prepared just in case they may be able to document um, a case of Ebola. Secondly, is the ministers um, agreed to develop a framework for collaboration and coordination, particularly on cross-border emergency. And this goes beyond um, uh, Ebola, but we'll use Ebola as the prototype as we develop uh, this particular framework. Finally, is the ministers have also agreed to hold a follow-up meeting by the end of November so that uh, progress on where we are with the first two items can be able to be assessed. And uh, um, this is now going to go beyond uh, the Eastern Africa region. We are going to do it for the whole uh, continent. So it was a very, very uh, important, productive meeting um, with ministers sitting in and providing us with the very key guidance and wisdom uh, on what um, we should be doing going forward. Fourth and last is, uh, as we speak, uh, from um, uh, Tuesday, we've had, um, uh, we've been hosting here in Addis Ababa a high-level meeting on community health, where um, we were disseminating the results for, of a survey on uh, uh, the, uh, Africa's preparedness in as far as community health workers are concerned, and uh, the intention was to generate uh, action. Uh, out of that survey uh, so that we can be able to have our member states 
uh, strengthening community health workforce across the continent, strengthening the support mechanisms for community health workers, and also ensuring that um, we standardize the way in which we train and deploy community health workers. That meeting has closed today with very good results and a clear call to action uh, as well. So these are the key things that I'd wanted to share today. And um, um, Nick, happy to go into questions and answers. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Director, very much for the very comprehensive overview of uh, this outbreak happening on the continent. And of course, uh, the works of Africa CDC in uh, implementing its mandate as enshrined in the statute. Um, let me also emphasize the last note on which the director ended the, the briefing. Uh, that is the issue with community uh, health workforce. And as we all know, uh, through the Africa City's new public health order, strengthening and empowering continental health workforce is a priority and a key priority under that uh, new public health order. So colleagues, uh, we will now move into the question and answer section. Uh, this one is the interaction with the journalist asking your question to the director and he will be providing adequate responses. So uh, we've already begun, but before we ask, begin the first question, let me remind you of the medium through which you can send your questions. Uh, first, you can use our WhatsApp number, the usual one, plus 251-9455-2310. Let me read that again, plus 251. 9455502310. Or better still, you can use the, the Zoom platform in any form, question and answer section, or better still, raise your hand and we will give you the opportunity to speak and ask your questions. So we've got two questions so far in the Q&A section. Let me move to that quickly. Uh, the first question is from our one of our regular colleagues, uh, Judith. Akolo, who is with the Kenyan Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, Akolo says, my question is, could a rise in zoonotic diseases be as a result of the consumption of bushmeat? What can be done to contain this? That's Judith Akolo's question. Over to you, Director. No, uh, thank you. Thank you, Judith. And um, um, it is a fact that... Um, many of these pathogens, uh, particularly the viruses um, that are currently uh, causing uh, many outbreaks on the continent, are um, the, the normal habitat is in uh, wild uh, animals and birds. Um, to zero in on bushmeat only will be a very small portion of the risk um, that uh, engaging with the wild environment um, bring poses to us as human beings. Um, but because the pathogens that are uh, causing these outbreaks are um, naturally found um, within the wild um, uh, animal and wild bird um, uh, kingdoms, it means that the way that we engage with nature needs uh, to be addressed. The ways that we can be able to do this, one is information. We need to package and provide information to our members of the public so that they appreciate and understand the risk of engaging with um, uh, wild animals and wild birds. Uh, this needs to be done in a respectful way uh, so as not to offend 
um, culture, but to provide information that is going to provide uh, to to, uh, uh, to afford uh, these um, communities um, safety uh, rather than exposing them uh, to virus. So one is information. Uh, second is um, we need to engage with um, um, our surveillance mechanisms in a very uh, sustained manner, meaning that our community health workers, for example, who are part of the communities, need to be uh, not just um, uh, trained and deployed, but we also need to support them so that any small um, um, uh, activity, any sm the very first case that appears in the community, we are able to identify and react quickly, because this then protects the community while showing the example that engaging with the um, that the wild um, would uh, result in um, a very high uh, risk of uh, contracting um, uh, some uh, of these pathogens. Finally, is um, for situations where it involves culture, it means that we need to provide alternative um, uh, to that particular, particular cultural practice. Um, uh, in this way, you um, get the community to come along rather than um, uh, to uh, make it difficult for communities to practice uh, culture without information. So these are the three things, that, uh, uh, Judith, that I would say we need to do uh, so as uh, to reduce the risk of a human-wild um, uh, conflict, which then results in um, uh, importation into the human population of these pathogens that are currently causing um, uh, the uh, the outbreaks we are seeing. Thank you. Thank you, Director. Very clear answer. Uh, let's move on to our second question. Remember, as we have taken our questions and answers, uh, you can use our regular WhatsApp number, plus 251-9455-2310. Uh, use either of uh, the Zoom icons. Uh, that's the question and answer, or raise your hand and you can ask your question. A second question comes from our colleague Alexander Winnie. Uh, Winnie is also a regular on this briefing, doing uh, this regular Thursday week weekly briefing. Uh, Winnie has two questions, so let me begin with the first one. He said, "Good afternoon, Winnie Alexander from Writers." The first question says, "Does the Africa CDC believe there is?" and undercut in its data of monkeypox cases in Africa, given the difficulties of reporting cases in often high-to-reach areas. Are efforts on the way to improve detection? That's Winnie's first question. Let me let you answer that, then I will ask the second one. Over to you, Director. No, thanks, thanks, Nick, and thank you, uh, Winnie. Uh, Under-reporting um, is always a risk when um, you have a condition uh, like monkeypox that is affecting communities uh, that do not have access um, to regular um, health uh, services. So there's always that risk. Now, at the moment, um, we do not believe that it is a very big uh, difference what we are uh, documenting and what may be um, not documented yet. We don't, we don't believe that there's a very big uh, difference. It is very representative of the situation uh, on the ground. And what we are doing to ensure that uh, it is representative is through um, uh, uh, identification, uh, contact tracing, 
and community engagement so that they are able to um, bring those who have been um, affected uh, to health facilities uh, for proper uh, management. So we do not believe that there is a significant um, uh, difference between what is being documented and what may uh, um, be additional cases uh, in, at the community level. Thank you. Let's move to Winnie's second question. It has a little note, so let me read clearly. At the height of the COVID pandemic, there was a big push for vaccine manufacturing on the African continent. But Aspen Pharmaceutical in South Africa has still not received orders for its COVID vaccine production lines. What are the prospects for Aspen's COVID lines? Is there is the Africa CDC still pushing for orders to be made? And more broadly, what are the prospects for vaccine manufacturing in Africa if plants like Aspen's can get orders despite the efforts of Africa CDC, South African government, and others? Um, no, thank you. Thank you, Winnie, <clears throat> for that second question. Um, so uh, currently, the, um, the enterprise of vaccine manufacturing on the continent is not limited to uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines manufacturing only. This was um, the catalyst for um, us as a continent uh, to make that decision that we needed to come from 1% to 60% uh, manufacturing by 2040, um, uh, local manufacturing uh, by 2040. So, it's very important um, to bear that in mind that the whole enterprise of vaccine manufacturing, uh, the market is big and it is present. Uh, what we need to do is organize that market in a way that um, enables uh, purchase of um, all these vaccines in um, an organized way. So we have good quality vaccines being manufactured uh, and then they enter the market of Africa. So this is a, a big enterprise across um, many uh, priority diseases. We've identified at least 20, 22 of them. Now, um, in as far as prospects are concerned, there are certain realities that we have to deal with on the continent. And the first is that the majority of uh, the vaccines that we use are purchased through uh, international mechanisms. And those international mechanisms have traditionally been purchasing these vaccines, most of the vaccines, 99% um, outside of the continent, meaning that we need to ensure that our African manufacturers are actually getting into the uh, supplier track um, when it comes to uh, the majority of the vaccines that are, that are being purchased through international uh, mechanisms. Which brings me to a question about Aspen. Uh, we continue to um, engage with those who buy vaccines. Um, the big challenge right now is that we have a bit of a glut of COVID-19 vaccines. And um, in this way, a purchase becomes the second step rather than the first one, when you have enough and uh, they are not moving fast enough. That is why also we have put the Saving Lives Livelihoods um, initiative so that we can be able um, to get as many vaccines into arms as possible and then create um, a, a space for purchase of new vaccines. So the Aspen experience teaches us two very important lessons. 
One is we must secure the African market for African manufacturers fast. And our heads of state already made a clear pronouncement in May uh, that all international um, uh, purchasing mechanisms need to purchase at least 30% of what they're purchasing from the continent of Africa. Because this is how the vaccines manufacturing enterprise will grow and become stronger um, uh, for African uh, manufacturers. The second thing that we need to do is um, to make sure that the infrastructure, um, the environment for uh, manufacturing vaccines on the continent is appropriate. And this includes uh, getting regulatory mechanisms here on the continent to be functioning properly, um, getting um, the, the, the continental coordination for um, regulations also to be in place. And that is why we have the Africa Medicines uh, Agency. And uh, thirdly, we need to ensure that our member states, those who have the capacity, ability, and are in the category where they purchase their own vaccines to be linked to the vaccines manufacturers here on the continent. And as Africa CDC, we are doing that. We expect that Africa Medicines Agency, when it begins functioning pro uh, fully, it will also continue to do exactly the same. So we have not given up on the case of um, Aspen. We are getting vaccines into people's arms, creating space, and then creating an opportunity for us to purchase uh, from, uh, uh, from Aspen in the near future. But the whole enterprise of vaccines manufacturing, at least 22 um, vaccines amenable uh, diseases have been identified, and we want all of these to be manufactured on the continent by different facilities uh, here in Africa. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you, Director, and thanks to our colleagues, uh, Elizana Winning and that of Judith Akoda. Uh, looking through all of our different screens for questions, uh, I don't see anyone coming in. So, colleagues, uh, it means we have got to push to the section where the Director will give us uh, his final three, two or three main points, airline points for this week briefing. So, Director, it's over to you, and after that, we'll close for, for this section. Over. No, thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. And uh, my three messages today, number one is on COVID-19 vaccination. We have picked momentum. We are um, in um, double the countries we were in one month ago, and we will be in double the countries one month from today. And as we pick that momentum um, for COVID-19 vaccination, we ask that you as journalists, you as members of the public, you um, really carry that message that we need to get vaccinated, the young, the old, and everybody else in the middle. So vaccines are available. Let's go out and get them, vaccines for COVID-19. The second message I have is um, on Ebola, um, um, the, particularly the outbreak in Uganda. We have made our assessments that um, um, two very important points uh, with this um, uh, outbreak is that we know how to deal with the virus. And therefore, the presence of the virus is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is when we allow that virus to circulate within the community. Therefore, for Ebola virus disease, we have put in place um, uh, an agreement with the, with the relevant health ministers of how to handle um, any case so that it does not circulate. Vir the virus will always be there, but we need to limit its ability to circulate within the population. 
Um, so um, uh, we have also agreed that uh, there will be no closure of borders or uh, uh, heavy restrictions of movement because this has um, effects that can be very negative in the long run for um, uh, our work around health emergencies. So Ebola virus disease is there. We have mechanisms to be able to limit its circulation within the population, and we have the capacity to be able to limit uh, its spread within a country and beyond. Um, third message I have today is on local manufacturing. We as Africa CDC um, have been clearly instructed by our heads of state that we need to get manufacturing on the continent happening, not just for vaccines, but also for uh, diagnostics, therapeutics, and all countermeasures that we use um, um, in uh, health emergencies. We are working with the different uh, sectors, including the private sector, so that we can have all these enterprises for manufacturing of the different items uh, to not only start, but also to grow uh, and be the, the point of supply for what we use and what we need here on the continent of Africa. So these are my three messages today on COVID-19 vaccination, on Ebola virus disease outbreak, and on local manufacturing for health security of the continent. Thank you very much. Back to you, Nick. Thank you very much, Director. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> the use of technology. Very clear and succinct message to our colleagues. You already have your hairline points, and we also want to say thanks to our colleagues. And again, apologize for starting a little late today due to uh, engagement that we could not change because of the timing. But however, we made it that we've got this very important information to you for sharing with the population. Let's do this next week, same time. This time, our 12 o'clock time uh, on Thursday uh, at our regular briefing time. Thanks to our colleagues in the background, both Africa CDC and the AU Commission. Uh, of course, our interpreter who has been providing other language uh, the opportunity to get the information for the other uh, group of citizens in that segment. Thank you, Director, for making the time. And goodbye from all of us here at Africa CDC. Uh, let's meet next Thursday. Bye-bye. That was a report, a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, that uh, report was delivered uh, just two days ago from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And uh, new stories uh, involving uh, the uh, Director General, the Acting Director General, Dr. Ahmed uh, Akwal Uma, uh, in regard to his treatment uh, while in Germany on uh, official business at a uh, scientific conference. Uh, the acting director of uh, Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says he won't be attending this year's World Health Summit in Berlin after experiencing difficulties with immigration control when his flight landed in Germany, a situation that immediately sparked outrage on social media. I've been mistreated at Frankfurt Airport, said Dr. Ahmed Okwell Uruma, uh, who uh, originally comes from the East African state of Kenya, who's been in the director role since Dr. John Nkangastone left the Africa CDC uh, in June. His problems uh, with German authorities led to his decision to return home and forego in-person attendance at the summit. Now, it's time to stay away from non-friendly territories for me, uh, Dr. Ogwell said, uh, but this is by no means the first time 
that African leaders have encountered similar problems, leading to a quick response from others who heard about Agwell's plight. The director of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said the World Health Organization hopes that the situation clears up. Your voice and expertise and that of the African CDC are of the utmost importance to the World Health Summit, uh, the WHO director said. Many question the point of including African leaders of barriers to participation or all they can expect and suggested Africa start hosting its own conferences. This is unacceptable, said uh, Jean Philbert uh, Nzing Jimana of Rwanda, uh, who serves as Africa CDC's chief digital advisor. This racism disguised as border protection or law enforcement must stop. It's high time the issue of the mistreatment suffered by Africans in overseas airports is addressed through diplomatic channels. Alimatu uh, Dimon Nekene, a prominent girls and women's rights activist from the West African state of Sierra Leone, noted that a similar incident happened to Uganda's Winnie Bainima, uh, the UN AIDS director, while traveling through Geneva in July. It seems these European airports just want to be openly discriminatory, said uh, Dimon. Uh, I had a similar experience at the Charles de Gaulle Airport last November. They have got to do better, unquote. Frankfurt Airport has asked for more information about the incident, insisting that we welcome all passengers and do not tolerate any form of discrimination or racism. And uh, another report, it says that the acting director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention alleged he was mistreated upon arrival at Germany's Frankfurt Airport uh, earlier today and had decided to return to Africa. Uh, Ahmed Agwell, who was on his way to attend the World Health Summit opening Sunday in Berlin, uh, said in a tweet that his attendance at the event was in doubt after an encounter with immigration personnel who imagined I wanted to stay back illegally. I'm happier and safer, safer back home in Africa. Uh, they invite you, then mistreat you, Agwell wrote. It's time to stay away from non-friendly territories for me. Very irritated. I'm done. In an update later in the day, he said, I've decided to go back to my beautiful continent. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, October the 15th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to today's program, just go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the 1963 studio recordings of John Coltrane and Duke Ellington. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off to have a beautiful week.